You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com Welcome, and I promise you're in for a great show. Now, before I get started, again, for those of you who are new tonight, let me give you a little bit of an idea of what you've gotten yourselves into. My name is Kathleen Smith, and uh, you know the show is called, obviously, Morph Mom Moments, but a little explanation as to what Morph Mom is. Uh, about six years ago, um, well, I had been a prosecutor many, many years ago. I stayed home to have my kids, and 14 years later, couldn't figure out what to do when I wanted to go back. I thought, well, I'm a prosecutor. Of course, I should do that, and they thought otherwise. <laughs> I think, in retrospect, they probably thought, how did you ever become a prosecutor? So, okay, how to change courses immediately. So, rather than reinvent the wheel, I decided to start MorphMom, which is M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M.com. And what I decided to do was go out and interview women around the country to tell their stories, how they did it, how they figured out what to do, how they figured out how to do it, what steps they took, and many times, most importantly, what steps not to take, and to pay it forward to others looking to figure out where to begin or if they knew what they wanted to do, how to move forward in that arena. So it grew, and uh, one of the biggest things that morphed was originally it was moms going back to work, and women around the country would say, well, I'm not a mom, but I've got a great story, or I'm a mom and I never stopped working, or I have a story that has nothing to do with work, but we could connect with someone and help. So we have morphed over six years. And basically, Morph Mom will share any story that will help others to connect with something they need to connect with to help them to get to where they need to be. Uh, we write for the Huffington Post, so I encourage you to read these stories on, uh, on, under my name, under Kathleen Smith. 
We have this radio show, which is so fun. And if you miss any portion of the radio show or would like to hear other prior radio shows, go to Morph Mom Moments on an iTunes podcast. And what's very exciting, and I know not more exciting than the guests that I'm about to introduce, but before I do, very, very excited to announce that we have now begun conferences, and we're hosting our third conference, April 23rd, in Morristown, New Jersey, at the Morris Museum. An amazing group of panelists, just fascinating topics, fascinating women, kind, kind women, willing to help others, again, pay it forward and encourage them to go where they need to get to. Go to morphmom.com for information on that, M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M.com, and I hope to see you guys on April 23rd. And if not, just continue to listen to the radio show and, uh, and join us every week on Thursday nights. So without further ado, and again, I'm sure many of you are done with listening to me talk about Morphin Mom, let's get to the reason that we're here tonight. It is such an honor and such a thrill to be sitting next to Arthur Vanderbilt II. Um, it's funny, when I was looking to describe how many arenas Arthur is involved in, there are so many that I came up with four basic arenas. He's an attorney. He's an antique, extraordinaire uh, buff. <laughs> yeah. He's an avid gardener, and he's an author. And what's fascinating about these four very different paths are they're all simultaneous. He, what he does is basically, and you'll hear tonight, is write about the things that he loves. So he's gardening, and he's critiquing, and, and, and involved with antiques, and he's an attorney. All this happens at the same time. And the, the books that Arthur has written stem from so many different topics to memoirs and to biographies and to you name it. Arthur is, has, has covered basically every topic. And what's most exciting is I heard tonight he's planning to cover more. <laughs> so without further ado, welcome, Arthur. And it's a thrill and an honor to have you here tonight. Uh, Kathleen, thank you so much. It's great to be here this beautiful evening here in some of the wonderful country clubs. So thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, it's an app, and really, it's a thrill. And when Arthur said yes, I was like, oh, my goodness, he's going to come on. Where do we begin? Arthur's life is fascinating, and many of you out there have now, as a Vanderbilt, one of Arthur's books is called Fortune's Children, and it deals with the Vanderbilt, um, the history of the Vanderbilt. And that's just, as I said, one of the many topics you've covered in all of the books that you've written. And I want to discuss that, but before getting to that, tell us a little bit about how you came to be where you are today, as I said, attorney, gardener, author, involved with antiques. How, how did this happen? And when you began your journey, did you know where you'd end up? I'm not a morph mom, though, but, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe the same sort of thing. I think I always felt I wanted to write books, even at a very young age. I think it's sort of born in you. So when I was at college, we had to do a senior thesis our senior year. I thought, well, why not do something I could develop into a book? So it sort of started that way. And I wrote a thesis about my grandfather, who was Chief Justice of New Jersey, and very much involved in a law reform movement. And my thesis was on him, and it grew into my first book, and I kept going from there. But but prior to that, and prior to doing the thesis, like, did you know, what what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, well, my grandfather had been a lawyer, and my father had also. So I think at that age, you don't know what you want to be. Uh, you're sort of led by what the people around you. So I said, well, I'm a lawyer, why not? <laughs> <laughs> I went down that path, went to law school, and became a lawyer. And Arthur and I actually discussed this a little bit earlier. We share very common, <laughs> we had a very common experience in law school. It was not our favorite time in life, but with every experience you grow, so you learn something. It was like the paper chase, like the movie, <laughs> the paper chase, especially first year. Very difficult, but we survived. We're survivors. We are survivors. And by the way, 
speaking of Arthur being an author, and I mentioned a few of his books, I just found out tonight he actually wrote a book about having gone through law school. Yes. It was sort of a mystery to me, the first and second year, what are they even talking about? Finally, by the third and final year, the last semester, I said, oh, my God, I think I understand it. <laughs> so why should it be so hard, I thought. So I sat down that summer to write a manual for future law students, sort of how to see a law school book, and got that published. I got nice reviews from the guy who wrote the paper chase, actually, and Scott Turow, who wrote One Law, and even from the dean of my law school. <laughs> he must have done something right. And that went through a number of editions. I hopefully helped other people. I think you help other people every day of your life from what you do. So I think clearly you did, and you've continued to do so since then. So we were talking about, so that was your first journey into writing and publishing. Did you go into law at that time as well? I did. Right out of law school, I went into the practice of law, first as a, uh, a clerk for a judge, and then in the Attorney General's Office of New Jersey, and the Council of the Governor's Office of New Jersey, in a private practice. And during that time, as you're practicing law and doing all these different things, having written the book and having been involved with senior thesis, was that sort of always sort of in, in the back of your head the whole time, the writing? Was that sort of an itch you had the entire time? I think very much so, yes. I started off writing books about the law, legal history of New Jersey, because I was fascinated by that. I found that lawyers do not read, and lawyers do not buy books. <laughs> so after writing two or three of those, I realized, well, why not get a broader topic for a bigger audience? And sort of moved on from there looking for, for more interesting topics. And how does that work? So, so you know you want to write, and does it is it that the topic comes to you first, or just the interest in writing, and then you seek the topic that encourages you to continue writing? Well, that, that's a great question. I think some of each. You want to write something, and you're looking around for what topics would interest you for two or three years would take you to write the book. And finally, you hit on, hit on a topic that feels right, and you keep going with it. So what was that first topic? So you're looking, and you're like, what was it that came to you? And I don't even know if there's an answer to this, but how did it come to you? Like, were you, did you just come across something or did something pique your interest somewhere else? Again, a good question. I read these books about the law, about legal history, which nobody was buying or reading, <laughs> even though I liked them very much myself. <laughs> um, so I got an idea. I've always been interested from a young age in pirates. And I went to Cape Cod in the summer for many, many years, and there was a back off the coast of the for that time. So I said, well, why not write about the history of this, the history of the pirates, as much as I could find out. In those days, you could submit a manuscript to different publishers, and they would actually read it without an agent. So I got Helen Mifflin interested in the book, and they did a great publication of it, and it worked out well. So that sort of broadened my scope of what I was writing about, from a law to more general interest topics. So out of curiosity, because I'm fascinated, I love Cape Cod also, but I also love pirate ships. <laughs> so I'm very fascinated by this as well. So how do you how do you figure out how to do the research for that book? Like, how, where do you begin, and and how do you know when you've done enough research? Back in those days, before the internet, so you're doing it in libraries, you're doing it in archives, you're searching for bits and pieces all over and finding sort of scraps of information. Something leads out of something else. Was sort of the old fashioned way to do it, but I found very fun to do it that way. And when you get the whole story, you sort of feel it, and you know that's the end. You've got the book there, and then you just write it up. So I'm, I'm so fascinated by this journey because as I shared with you, I, I tried. My 24-hour venture into writing did not turn out well. But it fascinates me, and I wish wish I had this skill, and I wish I could do this. When you're So are you 
contemporary, so you're doing the research, are you going home and then writing that night, or do you sort of accumulate everything and sort it out then, and then go back to it and write it? Well, I was practicing all at the same time, so very busy during the day, and would go home and I was younger then, so I had energy in the <laughs> evenings to do, to do stuff. <laughs> and I just was so fascinated by it. It wouldn't seem like work at all. You're having fun reading about it and researching and seeing how one piece leads on to the next piece. And starting to get a little chunk of the research done, you start writing it up, you drafting it up, and getting bits and pieces done. So you, don't write, you do not write chapter one first and go from there. You're doing maybe chapter three or chapter four, whatever you're into at that moment, and sort of backfill and go forward. So the book sort of evolves in that way. That's fascinating how you do that, how you can sort of jump in in the middle and figure it out from there. And most of your writing, or uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it's not been fictional. It's all been nonfiction, nonfiction right. which I guess is a very different way of writing that approach than it would have been as a fictional thing so, going yeah. into it. Yeah. yeah, I recently started working on some novels which is a very different mindset on how to write fiction. You're inventing something totally in your mind. You're inventing the characters, the action, the scenes. With a nonfiction, you're researching and sort of bringing real people to life. So very, very different ways of approaching those books. So after this book, um, what happened next? Like, so did this, uh, it took a couple of years, and then do you take a break? Or, or what, like, what happened? No, you're instantly looking for the next book. When you take a break, your mind is sort of, you feel sort of anxious, you feel ill at ease. If you're working on a project, I'm very much directed at it and I actually feel better. So I'm looking at the next topic. I said, what, what can I do now? This entire book was quite successful. How can I top it? I was still young and trying to go for the gold train. <laughs> and that's, I'd been to Newport that summer on my book tour for the pirate tour. So I was going to bookstores in Newport and everything like that. And in some free time, went to the Breakers at Marble House, which are two of the Vanderbilt mansions in Newport, and toured those. And I started thinking, well, this could be a great topic, writing about these people. The houses, the mansions at that time, were, I was responding to them. You hear tourists going through and say, oh, these are so over the top. How could people live here? <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, this is great. A cocktail party here, a dinner party here. <laughs> but you have no sense of who were these people that built them and lived in them. So I went home to New Jersey after that trip and went to our library and started pulling out books about the Vanderbilt family. Fortunately, found one by Consuelo Vanderbilt, who wrote her memoirs. And she was talking about growing up as a young kid, like 10 years old, in her parents' mansion on Fifth Avenue, and how scared she was every evening walking up this great limestone staircase to her bedroom. And I could identify with that. I'd always been afraid as a kid walking upstairs after dinner. So he was a real person. You start researching, find out they have real stories behind their real individuals. And I said, this is a great, great topic for a book. And so I went with that at that point. Now, for those of you just joining us, we're, I'm sitting here, which I can't even believe I'm sitting here, with Arthur Vanderbilt II, who we're talking about his journey. And again, just as a refresher for those of you joining us and those who have been listening, as I said, mentioned, he's an attorney, avid gardener, an antique entre, uh, buff, as we said, an author. And we're discussing how sort of his journey led to writing and the different books it led to. And the second book that Arthur did dealt with actually his family history as well. So... Can you tell us a little bit, um, and I want to go into the book as well, sort of where you've, uh, a quick, I guess, sort of family tree history so people can understand exactly where you are in the in lineage and how going back to this is so significant in your family line. Well, I think a lot of reviewers on people who read it did assume it was sort of a family memoir, which is, it's not. I'm a little, tiny little twig that fell off the family tree. <laughs> <laughs> My family descends from, we're talking about the Commodore, he's a guy that originally the fortune. When the Commodores 
father's brother. We come down from that line. So it really is a very, very distant relationship. I will say we all look alike. So, <laughs> so if you look at this watch, you say, oh, my God, it's got Dutch jeans or something. I remember I first met Gloria Vanderbilt some years ago, and she looked at me and she says, ah, yes. <laughs> You're one of us. <laughs> so I wrote it because my interest in the topic. It was just a super topic. People have not covered the family for a long, long time at all. And I wanted to bring them to life, uh, which I think I did in Fortune's Children. Absolutely, you did. And again, everyone after this interview should run out and get this book. Um, oh, 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 and you'll hear all these other books as well. So you have a very busy day buying all these books. But tell us a little bit about this and how, I guess, um, it all began with Cornelius. Yes. And how he sort of, through, I guess, steamboats and through the train line right. and actually Grand Central Station, right. began sort of the fortune behind Fortune's Children. Exactly. Yeah, just very quickly, Cornelius was born in the late 1700s. He was one of nine children born on Staten Island. Uh, his father was a dirt-poor farmer there, raised just enough to feed the family and sell a little bit over in New York City. And Cornelius was fascinated by the waterfront. He would take the trips back, of course, from Staten Island to New York City with his father. And when he was a teenager, he was a very strong, hearty, robust guy, full of energy and ambition. And he begged his mother for $100 to buy an old scow. He wanted to take passengers back and forth from Staten Island to Manhattan. So she loaned him the $100. He bought this run-down old little boat which he pulled or sailed back and forth. He was so determined, and he would go out in weather nobody else would go out in. He was dependable, he was reliable. Uh, the passengers loved him. That first year, he netted $1,000, paid back his mother $100, and started buying more little boats. Early 1800s, Steamships came to the new modern bench. He saw the future was there. to started moving to that area and quickly developed a steamship line and made a couple million dollars very quickly. So by his 40s, he's one of the richest people in the country. Now, I should add, he used methods which are no longer allowed because of him, <laughs> specifically monopolies. So if someone else had a steamship line where he wanted to run, he would lower his fares until he drove them out of business. Lower them to the point of charging the passengers nothing, zero. So drove those out, took over their line, and, of course, raised the rates. <laughs> His service was bare bones. Why on a steamship would you need a lifeboat? Why do you need life preservers? Those are just extra expenses. So it's sort of like, you know, People's Express, the airline that made a lot of money just by those stripped-down versions. It's sort of the People's Express of the day. Seeing that transportation method just at its peak, as peak in this country, and made a fortune there. The Civil War comes. He's now, after the war, in the 60s. And he starts seeing these little railroad lines coming to New York City, 20 miles a line here, 13 miles here. So why not consolidate these? Everybody says, the old man's going to lose all his money. He's going to lose his fortune. But this, he knows nothing about railroads. He bought them up. He consolidated them into the, what became the New York Central, which went all over the Northeast, out of Chicago. At a time in our nation's history, that part of the country was just growing explosively. And he made an even greater fortune with the railroads. Again, using his monopoly, <laughs> <laughs> which Congress later outlawed. <laughs> he took full advantage of it. He was ruthless. He was a hard, hard customer. But he, made, he loved it, just loved what he was doing and made a fortune. And he had a number of children as well, right? Yes. He... yes. Um, he had eight daughters and three sons. Uh, his favorite son died in the Civil War. Another son had epilepsy, which the Commodore considered a mental illness. This poor son was named Cornelius, and the Commodore had nothing to do with him. 
The third son, Billy. Now, first of all, the eight daughters were very nice, but all married and lost the name Vanderbilt, which in his eyes was just a tragedy. <laughs> so who was he going to leave the money to? So his oldest son, William, kind of a bumbling, sort of heavyset guy who looked not very bright. And the Commodore treated him like dirt, called him chowderhead, lather schedule sort of thing. But when he finally died, and he was about 83 years old, he left all his money to his one child, William, his oldest son. And when he died, what he left was, you know, he ran the history books, $100 million, which you must translate into today's dollars. It was back then more than was in the United States Treasury. <laughs> and it translated into today's dollars of about $110 billion, which is more than people like Bill Gates have or Warren Buffett, any of these people. An unbelievable amount of money. Okay. So this one son gets it all. He becomes head of the New York Central. In the eight years left in his life, he died early, 63 years before from a stroke. In those eight years remaining his life, he doubled the fortune, then $200 million, equal to today's dollars, maybe $240 billion. Now, this, this son, William, had eight children, four daughters and four sons. And when he died, they were all ranging in age from early 20s to maybe early 40s. What a wonderful age gets us dropped in your lap. <laughs> and it was that generation that went wild in, in spending this fortune. <laughs> And it really was, um, the spending spree was not actually started by the Vanderbilt kids themselves, by one of the people they married. Uh, one of Billy's son was, his name was William, they called him Willie, and he met a southern lady, Alva, whose father had been a cotton merchant during the Civil War and lost all his money and brought his family to New York City and lived in sort of a boarding house. Well, Alva seen enough of rich and poor, and the rich was definitely for her. <laughs> so she set her sights on marrying or finding a wealthy husband. And this was like the wealthiest prospect out there, Willie Vanderbilt. Alva was not, not extraordinarily beautiful, in fact, just the opposite. But she was very sexy in a sort of coquettish way, and Willie fell for her. Now, Alva thought she was marrying down by marrying the Vanderbilt. This was new money, the Vanderbilt. Was mm-hmm out of water rats and made new fortune. <laughs> so she thought she was doing an honor to the family by joining it. And she said, I'm going to get these people sort of on the social map and let them know that the family has arrived. And she did it basically through architecture. She had she bought her on Fifth Avenue, then the greatest city, the greatest street on the greatest city probably in the world, even then, bought this prime piece of real estate and had her architect, Richard Morris Hunt, designed for this fabulous palace. It looked like it was a chateau dropped from the French countryside right here, <laughs> plopped on the back, made out of limestone. And she gave a huge opening ball with a thousand guests. Everybody came, and that put them on the map. Now, the trouble was, what about the other children? Here's Alva doing this. Willie was not the oldest kid. So the wife of the oldest son said, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> Why don't you do a house like this? So they bought block of, on Fifth Avenue, which is now where the Bergdorf Goodman store is, the entire block, and built an even bigger mansion to occupy the whole block. Alva then said, well, all my friends go to Newport in the summer, and I have nothing. I need a cottage in Newport. Cottage? A cottage, yeah. <laughs> so, well, it's okay, build a cottage. So, again, they got Richard Morris Hunt. He built Marble House, which I've ever wow. seen is, like, magnificent. It's hard to even describe it. If you ever get near Newport, definitely go there. So the other, the wife of another one of the sons said, oh my gosh, well, this we got to so They built the breakers <laughs> up, the street, up the street. It went on like that. So every one of these kids had a house on Fifth Avenue, all trying to outdo each other in a wonderful country house. 
youngest brother, poor George, he was in his early 20s when he got his pile of money. He was single at the time. He goes down to Asheville, North Carolina, the Great Smoky Mountains, buys something like 120,000 acres of land and builds an even bigger chateau type of residence covering five acres with 250 rooms. They're all outdoing each other. Now, the interesting thing is, he finally married. None of the children of this generation ever occupied any of these mansions on Fifth Avenue or the country. All the ones on Fifth Avenue were destroyed, broken into rubble fairly quickly, within decades thereafter. Because, guess what? The money started running out. Even this unlimited amount of money, if you start spending it, with no real income coming in, it, it goes... Even the upkeep, point. I would imagine, it, for these. Oh, my gosh, were... yeah. And they... This was an age where there were no taxes initially, no inheritance tax, no estate taxes, no income taxes. Um, and you could get labor fairly cheaply. So they, and also, no sense of the social responsibility that great wealth brings with it. Today, you wouldn't dare do what they did. Back in the early days, they were like the movie stars of the day. Look at these great things these, these kids are doing. Uh, and that quickly changed. So the whole world was changing around them. They weren't changing with it. So was that the generation that sort of spent the fortune and lost, yeah. not, not 100%, but well, primarily, to put a pretty big... So I have a question. I did read a quote, um, and it's an inherited wealth is a real handicap to happiness. Um, so, oh, my gosh. Uh, it just seems to absolutely apply to everything you've just said. Yeah. And was there, I mean, oh. from what you researched, was there any happiness in this? I'm not... There was so much unhappiness you saw in the, in the story. And just one example, Alva had two, three children, two sons and one daughter. And her daughter, Consuelo, she was badly determined to make into a princess, to get her to marry royalty. So she did all sorts of things with poor girl growing up, teaching all It was crazy, crazy life the poor kid led. When she's 18, Consuelo falls in love with a very attractive, eligible, blue blood person, Winthrop Rutherford III. And it sounds like he sort of looked like a Brad Pitt person, just very striking good look. And he wanted uh, to be engaged to Consuelo. Alva said, absolutely no way. You're going to marry royalty. She did everything she could to stop that engagement, including feigning a heart attack, telling her daughter she was going to die. She, Alva's going to die if this went through. And getting her daughter away from poor Winthrop, taking her over to Europe, forcing a marriage with the ninth Duke of Marlborough over in England. Was a little short guy and was sort of the crazy teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Not the Brad Pitt Not the, guy that she just left back in the exactly, days. <laughs> the exact opposite of Brad Pitt. But the Ninth Duke needed, he was destitute, his huge palace, Blenheim, Blenheim Palace, which had a zillion rooms in it, and he needed American money to restore this thing. So he didn't love Consuelo, but he needed the money. She didn't love him, but all of a sudden you've got to marry him to become. Uh, a royal the duchess. So that's that's what happened. I'm talking about unhappiness. Alva later in her life realized, oh my God, what have I done to my daughter? And they made up uh, much later in their lives. But to go through something like that, and there's so many stories like that, that's a dramatic one, where the money didn't buy happiness, but just the opposite. Mm-hmm. So it shows what this great money they could do with it and what it did to them. It was... And again, as it, this, uh, you know, your family history, the, the lineal, the family tree... Was that, I would think, possibly one of the most fascinating things that you sort of found out during this about what we just talked about, that it's the handicapped happiness as opposed to the fairway to happiness? Oh, yes. Oh, very much so. 
and you delve into a story which had not been delved into before. I mean, I think I was the first in the find Alba's draft memoirs, which are in a couple archives all over the country, and to use those. Uh, so that's it. But you find these different stories of terrible things were happening, and people disinherited because they were engaged in the wrong woman. That's another story. With, uh, and it goes on and on like that. With everything you researched and every uh, relatives, I guess, that you sort of learned about, is there someone that, I guess, you know, someone that really stood out to you that you felt carried, maintained the value system through all of this? You know, and, and it's hard it must have been because everybody else was just going downhill very quickly. But is there someone that you were almost like proud to say, okay, that is one of my relatives who actually who overcame the, the, the fortune? as opposed to the, everything else. That's a very intriguing question. I mean, so many of them were swept up by this enormous wealth that was dropped in their lap. And what to, you had no idea what to do with it. Um, and they were sort of finding their way. I think one of survivors, definitely Gloria Vanderbilt, um, who went through a terrible story herself, the custody battle when she was 10 years old between her very young mother and her great aunt Gertrude, um, which was the headlines that day, this poor little rich girl torn in court. Will her mother get her? Will the great aunt get her? And uh, she's had, uh, Gloria's had ups and downs in her life, but she's definitely a survivor, kept reinventing herself. So I admire someone like that a lot. I think that would be one of the most exciting things to come out of it, too, because you see all this, all these bad things happening and how money can do this to people. And then you see the one person that went through all these terrible things and overcame it and, and survived it. And, and then not only survived, but completely excelled yes. on her own as yes. well, yes. following that. She very much wanted to make her own way. I mean, she wanted to always want to distance herself from the family. She would never read anything about her family. She wanted to be her own independent person, uh, which I admire. And really did great things. I mean, she did her fashion industry, made a fortune there on her own. She's a great artist, a great author. So she's been an incredible person. So clearly there's that author gene in your family. <laughs> because you also, as a great author... So as, as I mentioned before, for those of you joining us tonight, I'm here with Arthur Vanderbilt II, and this is just so exciting and fascinating learning about all this. So we just discussed one of his books, Fortune's Children, which goes back to Cornelius Vanderbilt, who began the legacy and, and how, sort of, as we said, inherited wealth is a real handicap to happiness and what happened in the fall of the fortune. But there were many other books that Arthur has done as well. And another one... Um, that I'm very curious to ask, but I'm a dog lover myself, but Golden Days, the memoir of a golden retriever. I, I have to ask you about that one too. Sure. Oh my gosh. Yes. That was about our golden retriever, Amy. And it's, it's based on Cape Cod, which we spent the summers uh, sort of weaving in the Cape Cod stuff with having fun with the dog. So it, that, that book did very well. It was just, it's a fun one to write. A very different, I'm not researching in there. That's more of a memoir type of book. So just fun to write. And hopefully I got the story across. But what was it when you said that, was it something about the dog that just carried such good memories that with Cape Cod or that, like, what, when you were, we were talking about before, like, how do you decide, you always want to write, but how do you decide what you want to write about? So what was it that brought the two things together? Yeah. I guess when you, I don't know if you had been around Golden Retrievers, they're very, very special dogs, and they're like people. You get very invested in them, they get invested in your life. And just so the life we shared together, I thought, was interesting. I started writing sections of that. It seemed to be flowing together, working. Uh, so that became the book. Again, a fun one to write. Oh, I, I have a 
I have a well, golden doodle, so half golden for sure. But there's something about it, yeah. I know. Yeah. And it just touches your life in yeah. so many ways, yeah. which I'm just learning to realize, like just becoming aware of that. So I have a seven-year-old um, golden doodle, and then I have a four-year-old little puppy. And I, I can't imagine a life without one, not a puppy, but he just very little looks like a puppy. Yeah. <laughs> He's very ill-behaved, so much like everybody in my house. But anyway, <laughs> join the crowd. But um, um so, okay, so we were talking again about how when Arthur wrote, it was never about just all nonfiction up to date, but it was never about one specific subject. We was talked about the dog and Cape Cod that meant a great deal in your family. A uh, few, uh, Fortune's Children, the, the, the lineage and the Vanderbilt legacy and what happened. But there's so many more other subjects that you touched upon, and one of which, as Arthur being an avid gardener, he wrote about gardening. So tell us about that and how you got involved with gardening and how that translated into a book. Yes, I, I think I've always been interested in gardening. Uh, my grandmother on my father's side was very much an avid gardener, as was my grandfather on my mother's side. So maybe those genes are in there someplace. <laughs> but from a very young age, I just I loved working out in the yard, loved doing things. And when I got a house, uh, you don't think much about your yard when you're first there. I mean, all of a sudden I started seeing what this could be developed into, starting laying out brick paths and getting rid of the weeds and the the vines and everything, and develop bit by bit into a garden. You start the vision starts to come. For me, not all at once. Probably a, a good landscape architect could do it all at once on a weekend, but it took me a while to develop it. And when you do it yourself, I think you get very much invested in and just have a lot of fun doing it. So that became the book Gardening in Eden, uh, which I enjoyed doing. So going into it, did you have a background with like like when I. I I love gardening. And from Jersey City, I maybe saw a few blades of grass going up. <laughs> it was a real shock to me when they were like, lots more in colors and everything yeah. was going on out there. But did you have to, how did you learn, like, what was a weed as opposed to what, when a plant was dead or when it was coming? I mean, I, they sound simple, but it's not that simple well, to figure this out. Yeah, it's not simple at all. It's trial and error. When I mean, you have visions in your mind of what you want to do, and you might get the plants and put them in there. They don't want to be there at all. They die. Throw it over that. That's not going to work. So you go on to plan B, and eventually you find what's sort of happy where you're putting it, what looks, looks well where you're putting it, what's working well together. And that's, it sort of develops bit by bit by bit in that way. And of course, there's things like garden statuary, you know, doing a little gazebo and all the fancy stuff, which is fun. Did, so of the books, and again, such a varied topic, and there's so many more other, so many other topics out there that you did. Of all these varying topics, Oh, we haven't even talked about, which we have another one to talk about, antiques. So you're out in the garden, and you're, you're doing all this research. You're up in Cape Cod, dealing with it. How did you learn all this about antiques now? Please tell me. Well, again, I think that's maybe a little genetics thing. I don't know. My parents were not into antiques. Um, but somehow I got sort of interested in this at a certain point. I'm trying to remember one. Maybe around my law school days, you start to see something with new eyes at a certain point. Like all of a sudden, you're seeing a chair and what that chair is and maybe the history behind the chair. And once you start looking at things in a new way like that, the whole world is opening up. And, and that's happening at a certain point. And again, you follow it step by step, start learning things, just trial and error. And uh, you know, getting buying things for your own house, be it a garage sale, a state sale, and realizing, my gosh, you're loving it, but you're also realizing this could be increasing in value rather than something you buy at Ikea or you know, any uh, department store. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. To write, so of all the books, and again, there are many more beyond what we've mentioned, which one would you say took the most um, 
most amount of research or which was the most work intensive that you had to do? Yeah. Um, I had a, for Fortune's Children, I had a contract with a publisher and they wanted it done in 18 months, uh, which again, I was doing when I was practicing law, but I was a lot younger then. <laughs> and that was a lot of research. Again, pure fun. I never felt like I was working. I never felt, oh my God, I got to do another page or two of this. It was something I was just enjoying so much. It went very quickly. Provided most detailed research went into that book, which by the way, HBO has purchased and is making a uh, miniseries out of similar to Downton Abbey. <laughs> You've heard it here. <laughs> More small moments. It is so exciting. <laughs> so what HBO wants to do is to make the American version of Downton Abbey uh, with the story in this book. And I'm biased, I'm sort of prejudiced, but I think the characters here are equally as good as the ones, I love Down Abbey, by the way, but equally the fascinating stories, I can see it happening. So thinking of doing a multi-year series on this, the same number of segments that Down Abbey had per year. So if we all have parts in it, let me know. I'd like a part in it. I'm not shy. I, and I, every, all my co-hosts at the table would like a part in it as well. Who wants to be, who wants to be Alba? I'm not afraid. I will take it on if you need me. It's just nice to be Alba. Oh, I get me behind a camera. You never know. So how does that happen? Were you putting it out there to be optioned, or were you approached? You know, you, you'd hope that um, I had an agent. I had a film agent, and you're sort of hoping they're doing that work, but you find out they don't. And what happened here is the people come to you. My hope is they would go out and say, here's this great thing here. People somehow found the book and came to us and said, can we option this book? So since it's been published, it's been under option for a whole number of years. Uh, The options expire, either renew them or let them go. And HBO has now picked this thing up and is actually running with it, which is, is good. Now, when you, and I don't know what, again, <laughs> I'm a lawyer, but I don't know anything. <laughs> I can't remember everything. knew that. Contracts, nope, got nothing. No, no, don't even know. But when you, when this is optioned and you sell the story, do you, can you keep, like, creative control over what's happening, or can you say, I'd like to continue writing for it? How does that work? Well, I think it depends who you are. I, yeah. I, I was just so happy if somebody's doing it. <laughs> That's all I care about. I've been in touch with the screenwriter, and we've bounced ideas back and forth. He's been very good. Um, I'll, I'll be very happy with whatever they do, to tell you the truth. I think if you're a big-name author, you can call the shots. Uh, I'm a happy small author. I disagree. I think you're a pretty big-name author, and I think the things you have covered are unbelievable. And this is just the beginning of what's to come. I mean, everything you've been doing, and it's now a whole other avenue approaching. It's, it's amazing. I've got to come up with something that starts with an A for HBO optioned book. Now. <laughs> I'm going to come up with that. Um, so now that that's happening with your Fortune's Children book, are are you focusing on that? Or are you still now out there thinking, well, I've got to write about this and I've got to write about that? Oh, you always want to do more. You want to do something new. So that's sort of in the past. Um, so I'm always kind of pushing forward with new books. You always help me for the, get the next one even a higher level, go for the brass ring, the gold ring, whatever it is. So... I think writers always have to write. They're not really happy. It's so funny when I'm thinking about this now and, and finding other than you just love to share stories and, and share, um, you know, authentic stories with people. But what is the common thread that goes through everything that you do? So gardening, it's bringing things to life. And it's telling a story about your history and your family and bringing them to life. And antiques, it's bringing something that's old back to life. It, it seems to me that 
when you cease, you have a very special eye that you can kind of find the subject that has so much, the seed of something that needs to be represented, needs to be told. So I, I don't know if that, do you think about that going into something like I see something there and I know that I can bring light to this? You're very kind. <laughs> you're thinking greater you're thoughts than I'm thinking. I've been doing it. But these are, these are topics I've been just so passionate about, so fascinated by. That I want to do more with it, work with it. And that's, I, I see no rhyme or reason what I'm doing in the big picture. I'm just happy with what I'm doing at the moment. Big picture. Well, we're all very happy you're doing it in the moment also. We, are you kidding? What we're gaining from this is unbelievable. So when you, when you describe yourself, as we said, you're involved in so many different things. So someone was to say to you, so what do you do? What would you say? Yeah, a lot depends on the person who I'm talking to. I, I shift it for different people. <laughs> <laughs> I, I retired from the practice of law a couple of years ago, so I no longer even admit I'm a lawyer. <laughs> Right now, I think I say I'm an author. I'm retired. <laughs> Let it go with that. Because if they know I'm a lawyer, they start asking real questions. <laughs> and I can't even bill for it now. So, we go. <laughs> so I just said I'm a writer. Yeah. Uh, and of all the things that you've done, would you say that I'm a writer sort of gives you that inner, like, happiness, that smile, or that, like, you know, the extra step, it's bringing your step when you say that? I think so, yes. I mean, you know what being a lawyer is like. <laughs> We're making faces here. <laughs> but when you do a book, I mean, there it is. It's sitting on your shelf. You start looking at it. Oh, my God, I did that. And sometimes I go back and read it. I say, wow, that is really good. <laughs> <You know? laughs> a good feeling. Rather than having a bunch of bound briefs on your shelf or something like that, bound contracts or whatever, we did it as lawyers. We're working as a lawyer. You're working for somebody. As an author, you're really working for yourself to please yourself, and you're, you're very happy when other people like it. But that's, it's a very different that way. It's, now, I'm sure you've never encountered this, but I'm just curious that you just mentioned when other people like it. And I, again, I preface this by saying I'm sure there's never been a time that no one that it has not been like. But is that something you consider when you put something out there, the fear of, do you think about the critics? Do you think about how this will be received? Or is it that you're confident in what you've done and you're happy with what, where it's come? Yeah. You really can't think about how it's going to be received. You've got to say, what is pleasing you? What are you, what are you trying to do and have you achieved it? Uh, you don't worry about what the reviewers are going to say, what the critics are going to say, what people are going to say on Amazon, but they say anything they want to say. It's what have you achieved, the goal you have to achieve. You never reach it exactly, but get as close as you can to it. Uh, that's sort of where my mindset is. And I know I sort of mentioned this before earlier. So you start the book, and you, we were saying um, it's a nonfiction. So it's not sort of like, I, I don't know if this is true, but maybe fictional. I would think you develop the characters and you go more, it's a more linear approach, as opposed to a nonfiction where you can sort of dive in and go backwards and forwards at any time. Um, when you're doing that, though, how do you know when it's done? How do you know... I'm not going back to the library. I'm, I'm done researching. I am done. It's sort of a feeling. You sort of do know it instinctively. That, that is the book. That's the story you want to tell. It's all there. There's nothing you're asking in your mind. Well, what about this strand? Or what's happened here? You sort of know all the answers you set out to find. And you're very comfortable with that. So you, it, you definitely feel it when the book is finished. And of all the books you've done, and is there a time when you were researching or a time when you came across something that, really kind of set you back for a minute that you honestly couldn't believe what you just discovered or just found. 
I don't know if I'm explaining myself right, but sort of going into this kind of the general story. It's a nonfiction story, and you're delivering it. But has there been that, that tidbit or that one thing that you found? You're like, wait a minute, whoa, what have I just uncovered? Well, that's, that's what makes it so exciting. It's like a discovery every single day you sit down to research and write, and you're so happy to find these bits and pieces. I think every day you're feeling that sort of sense of discovery, which really makes it a lot of fun. So for all aspiring authors out there right now, um, what would you say would be the most important, what would be the most important bit of advice you could give them? And I would say the, the positive, but also the negative as well. Something that you learned through all of this, that you would say, stay away from this, or this didn't work, or I don't know if there is just one, but. Well, we've gone for a long time. I'm not subject. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the positive would be just keep trying, pushing ahead with your own vision. The negative is, I think it's getting harder and harder to find uh, an agent, to find an editor, to find a publisher. And it's extreme, it can be extremely discouraging. Even, I mean, there's so many stories that even authors famous today who rejected, their first book was rejected by 28, 33, 40 publishers before they got it published. And that became a huge bestseller. So you cannot get discouraged um, or you keep meeting that sort of resistance. If you think you know what you're doing, just keep pushing it forward. And out there, I mean, I with self-publishing and all the other options that are out there today, what is the, the so getting the agent, getting the, do you need the agent to get to the publicist? Do you, or do you get to the, you know, to the the editor? Like, how does that work? And do you need everybody in the group nowadays? Yeah. And when I first started, you did not need an agent. You could go to any great publisher, most of the great publishers yourself. So I got this manuscript and they would read it and they would tell you something, yes or no. Today, they won't even look at it unless it comes to an agent. As hard as they get an agent, it is to find a publisher. So it's like a catch-22. Do you need them? You need them desperately. Because we all hear about self-publishing. That is extremely hard. It's extremely hard to reach an audience with self-publishing. Whereas a, a real publisher can find that audience for you. So it, it's a world of difference. Hopefully, there will be a day when you can self-publish and reach the audience you want to reach. But I don't think it's there yet. So going forward, and we talked about, and again, for all of you out there, this is very exciting that Arthur Vanderbilt II is still writing, <laughs> constantly writing, which is very, very exciting. But I think I heard a mention of there being not a fictional, a possibility of a fictional book coming down the pike. And what made you decide to sort of switch gears and go towards fictional? You know, I think most authors feel like they want to try fiction at some point. We all have favorite books, books we love, fictional books we love. I was thinking, mm, I could do that. <laughs> you know, sometimes I read even great books like Huckleberry Fair or something, I say, I realize that I think I should be changed this way. <laughs> you know, like rewriting these great classics. Like, like, so you want to try yourself. So you sort of get a journal idea just to see, play with it, see if you can do it. So I think we all want to try it at some point. I'm trying it, so we'll see. I, I think clearly you're going to succeed. I mean, I think clearly that's not even a question. Um, so starting out on this, you, were, you mentioned before that the um, nonfiction, you, you would estimate about two years, I think is what you said, given the timeline. Do you give yourself a timeline for a fictional book? You know, I really don't. I just you sort of just plug away with it, and whatever seems to work for you. I mean, each book takes a different length. Sort of an average for me was two to three years maybe for a, per book. So whatever the fiction takes, it's going to take. Um, some authors are very disciplined. We're talking about Mary Higgins Clark over dinner who sits down every day at the same hour and writes for a certain number of hours. That is extreme discipline. And that's why she can write so many books and so many wonderful books. 
I'm not there. I can't do that. I'm more sporadic. But the authors that can, it's just very successful. So I just plug away as I can and see what happens. So you don't have like a set schedule that I by the, the end of the month I'll have X amount of pages. It doesn't work like that. It's sort of let the story evolve as it evolves. Yeah, I wish it. I wish it, <laughs> I wish it did work that way. You know, I think an author is so happy to even write one good page yeah. a day. You keep reading over, reading over and over, and say, "Wow, this is really good." But you want to then move on to the next page. You can't get mesmerized by your first page or your second page. I <laughs> keep moving, push it forward. So it's a daily discipline to do that. Again, just out of curiosity, so you're sleeping and you have this great idea and you wake up in the middle like does that happen like you're writing notes you're writing notes or for you is it a different approach where you sort of you keep it all together and then you sit down and you kind of put it all together at once i think it works in all those ways sometimes you're sleeping get a wonderful wonderful idea you're sure you remember it it is totally gone You start to keep a little pad by your bed you scratch a note which you can no longer read in the morning totally scratched so eventually, you jot little notes during the day and that type of thing, and eventually starts gelling together into maybe an idea for a scene or a paragraph or two, and you're so happy just with that, and those things start kind of falling together. And I, as, and I apologize for asking more books about the fictional, but I'm so curious about this. So as you begin this fictional journey, when you went into it, was it um, the idea of the book behind it, or was it a character that kind of gave you the idea or what was it that sort of gave you the idea to go that way and are some of the characters modeled after people you may have known or or other characters in some of your books from nonfiction? Yeah. I think that's those are good questions. I think a lot of the characters are a combination of people we have known sort of imagine put traits on them in your mind and you build somebody that's hopefully new and different scenes Maybe things you've seen yourself or been through yourself and just you modify them slightly. So a lot of it is things you've experienced that you're just kind of pushing the boundaries a little bit to make it fictional. Okay, so I know now you're beginning this fictional yeah. process, but so far, do you find fictional and not, like, do you find one more exciting than the other or are you both, they're different enough that you're as interested in both? Well, I think they're both, when you're doing them, they're both fascinating on their own on their own merits. So I'm now in the fictional stuff. I'm just loving it as much as the nonfiction. It's, I think it's so exciting, too, that you are open to do all of these different things. Um, looking back on the nonfictional books that you've done, and I, again, now you're doing a fictional book, is there another topic in nonfiction that you think you'll revisit at some point following this? Yeah, I think definitely. I, again, you want to find the right topic. And I'm not sure what it is at this point, but the one sort of comes in my head, I definitely will pursue it. <laughs> <laughs> so you sort of, you're constantly kind of looking and aware of these things. And uh, sometimes something hits and ignites that uh, special spark. It must be so exciting to have that skill or have that sort of to know it clicks. Like, all right, yeah. this is it. I'm yeah. doing this. When yeah. it clicked and I'm doing yeah. it. Yeah. I think when, when it clicks, you definitely know it. It's not a question. You know, this is the book. Yeah. I want to pursue this and just fully consumed by it. So when it happens, you definitely know it. Now, are you secretive about them when you're doing them? <laughs> I'm just curious because I know some people out there are writing a book who won't tell me what they're writing about. It's making me very, and I, I live with them. I'm married to them. But I don't know what it is, and I can't find it, and I've looked. <laughs> but I don't know. I think your husband's very smart. <laughs> Yes, he's hidden it well. I can't find <laughs> Good. it. Authors <laughs> learn very quickly, never, never, <laughs> never to talk about the book they're working on. They are so fragile, that incubation stage. 
I describe it like you see a beautiful cloud up in the sky. You're trying to lasso it with a rope and haul it down without losing it. I mean, it's that fragile. So if you tell somebody your idea and they, like, twitch an eyebrow, that could kill it. But if they make some comment, some innocuous comment, that could kill the whole book. So you really don't want to talk about those. Almost, I'd say, it's complete. You don't share it with anybody. It's the worst form of unlucky to start talking about. I love that analogy, what you just said about that cloud, that fragility of this yeah. idea and that somebody's reaction. And it's not something they said. It could be right. a, like a, a slight facial gesture exactly. could exactly. completely dissolve your hopes. And yeah. you're like, but isn't it so fascinating that somebody else's reaction could decimate your yes. feeling yeah. about this? It's, it's so fragile, that stage. I think people who have not written books don't realize that. They can just all talk. They, why won't you talk about it? Why are you being so secretive? Where you learn very quickly, you have to be, or you lose that sort of spark of inspiration to push it forward. Do you think it could? Don't look for your head. Don't look for your head. Don't look for his manual. Well, not that he knows. I will never tell when I find it. <laughs> but do you feel? Do you think that, like that, that eyebrow shift or that I don't know, the eye roll or yeah, whatever it is, could be enough to take away the confidence to continue a book for some out there? Hundred percent, absolutely, yes. That's why you have to be so careful. And people, you, you, what you want to talk about more than anything is what you're working on. Yeah. And that's the one thing you cannot talk about. And, of course, all your friends say, well, what are you working on? What are you working on now? What's your topic? <laughs> <laughs> you're very ambiguous. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a book. Yeah. <laughs> it's got words. It's nonfiction. <laughs> it has pages. But, but I mean, so many authors, but the really big authors have exactly the same thing. They will never, never talk about what they're working I still, like, I'm going back to what you just said. I love that analogy of last wing, the cloud. I just, I feels, love that. Yeah, yeah. That feels that fragile. And does it also feel, with the fragility and keeping it secretive to yourself, so exciting to have that secret inside, to know that you've got something so special? You feel it. You'd love to share it. I mean, again, you'd love to say, here's what I worked on this morning. Yeah. It came out so well. Right. And that's the one thing you cannot talk about. But it's definitely something inside of you because you're excited about it. It keeps you going every day. It keeps you waking up in the morning and, and working on it. I mean, that's something we all wish for, right? Something to find something that keeps you going, that gets you up in the morning, that, that special secret inside that, like, gets you through a bad day. Yeah. I can't believe our time is up. I want to keep talking and talking and talking. <laughs> um, so, Arthur, tell us about how we can find all of your books and what the best ways to get there and... Um, obviously subscribe to HBO immediately because I don't know when it'll be out there, but we're going to want that right away because you want to see all of us as extras and things or stars. I don't know, whatever the movie book. But, sorry, to tell us about how everyone can get to the books that you have. Uh, all the books on Amazon. That's really the easiest way to buy them. It's the quickest way. Amazon is wonderful. So I buy all my books. And all, <laughs> they're all there. i got a little office profile page. You can look at them. So should they go to Arthur Vanderbilt II yeah. to get an all? And that's the yeah. best way to do it. Or any of the books will open up all the other books. So it's all sort of connected. It's so easy today. Yeah. So as we leave tonight, and hopefully you'll come back again many more times, but what would be your advice, again, to those out there looking to start? And maybe it's not just writing. Maybe, like, your journey has been incredible. You have managed to, as we said, you're an attorney. You love antiques, you love gardening, and you love writing. And somehow you've managed to combine all of them and not stray from any of them. So not just authors out there, but people who have many interests. What's your advice to people out there trying to figure out what to do next? I think just pursue what your passion is. Just push it forward, go for it. 
uh, keep your own vision. Don't necessarily go what other people are telling you to do. Go what you think you should be doing. And just push it forward. It'll work. You heard it here, and it works. It works. Arthur, I can't thank you enough for coming on tonight. It's been an absolute honor. I'm so excited for what's happening with what you've done for the HBO series, for the fictional books about to come, and for the books that exist out there. So all of you out there, as we heard, go to Amazon, go to Arthur Vanderbilt II to get the profile, to read these books, and really to... What Arthur has touched upon is fascinating, and it's so different. But again, I think there is that common thread there, and I think that's what's so exciting. So thank you, and for all of those who, who joined us tonight, thank you again. Thank you for my newcomers, and I'll see you next week. Good night, everyone. Oh, my gosh. Hi, I'm Danny Ilo. You may know me as an actor, but one of the things that I'm most proud of is my service to this country. Any honor?